You're listening to World Oil Deep Dive, conversations with energy industry leaders and engineers about the market trends and technologies shaping the oil and gas industry. Now, here's this week's episode. All right, so hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you all to this latest podcast installment. My name is Lee Nichols, and I'm going to be your host today. Now, joining us today is a very special guest. Mike Agenbaugh is the Associate Target Market Manager for Swagelock. Now, we're going to be diving deep into the world of fugitive emissions with Mike, and we've got a lot to get to on this episode. So I want to welcome in our special guest. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Lee. Thanks for having me today. Excellent. Well, really appreciate you taking a couple minutes out of your day uh, to chat with us on on these really important topics, especially fugitive emissions. So before we dive into some of the questions I have for you, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about Swagelock and your role with the company? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Swagelock has been around for a really long time. I mean, we've uh, manufacture fluid system components. So things like valves and tube fittings and um, all sorts of devices that are used in, in smaller systems, right? So things under two inches, mostly. Um, it's a U.S.-based company, um, make all of our products in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, we have about 20 or so facilities out there, um, you know, roughly five or 6,000 employees worldwide. It's, it's a privately held company, too. Um, and we work through a series of distributors, right? So these are separate, uh, independent distributors that, that sell and service the products and have their own employees that are located in the territories in which your facility resides. So, uh, you know, it's been around since 1947. And, um, you know, for the most part, I've been with the company since I graduated college in 2005. And so I have, uh, you know, it's almost 18 years of experience working with this company in a variety of roles. But uh, what I will tell you is I, I've been at the distributor level for most of my career. So uh, 17 of these 18 years, I was actually out in the distributor world you know, talking with customers and, and hopefully solving their problems and uh, you, you you name it, right? Any market you can imagine I've been involved with in power and gas and, you know, pharmaceuticals and semiconductor, clean energy, uh, you name it. So I've I've been at the, the forefront of, of these applications for these products. So, so then you're the, you're the right person to talk with. <laughs> uh, and, that, and that's where I want to get into to start off the conversation. So, First, for the people that are listening now, what are some of the major market trends that you're seeing in the oil, gas, chemical market? And then, you know, what are you seeing on the horizon within those different sectors? Yeah, you know, like I mentioned, I've been with the company for a while and I've had the the pleasure of seeing how a lot of companies have changed, uh, particularly over the last 10 years. And I, I would say since 2009, since the last, you know, great recession that was out there, um, companies are you know, this sounds kind of cliche to say, but, you know, companies are doing more with less. And that's a trend that is, you know, regardless of what industry you're in, um, these companies are going that way. These facilities are going that way. Um, so, you know, when I when I started my career, I was in customer service and warehousing, and I wasn't really connected to this side of the market and understanding what's going on. Um, and But then, you know, around 2012 or 2013, I started becoming a salesperson for the oil and gas market, uh, specifically some refineries out in the Philadelphia area. And that's really where I started to see the different trends about what was going on and, you know, the questions customers were asking and you kind of put everything together and you get this picture of, of where things are going in the future. And that's been really beneficial to me. So if you kind of look back at, you know, pre 2009, it was a, a 
transactions focused industry. And what I mean by that is, you know, vendors for the most part played a particular role in just making sure products were there. And that was about it. Um, Customers, they're under a lot of different pressures. And we're going to talk about a couple of them today. Uh, But these pressures are, are mostly external pressures that are forcing a lot of these facilities to uh, utilize their resources, and, and some of those resources are vendors, right? So uh, think about uh, some of these environmental pressures they have, uh, labor pressures, particularly with the way in which COVID has impacted the labor force. A lot of these facilities, these large manufacturers, are what they're doing is they're, they're contracting a lot of their work that they used to handle before. And so think about it from their perspective. Uh, you know, it's hard to bring in labor to work for them directly. So they bring a lot more contractors in. Um, some of those trends are affecting um, the way in which they install things, right? The way in which they service their facility, the way in which they, you know, document maintenance. Um, a lot of those documentation systems are, are integral to the way in which they operate. So, uh, you know, for example, they used to be looking at maybe um, the efficiency rate of a barrel, and that used to be the primary driver of out product. Uh, now they're looking down with a finer tooth comb, if you want to put it that way, uh, looking into all operational aspects, documenting a lot more. Um, there's a lot more training these days. That's a, that's a huge thing that's going on right now. You know, looking at who has what certifications, you know, uh, how external vendors are filling those or plugging those holes for them. Um, also, th- there's a lot more changes going on in the procurement market. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we looked prior to 2020, you know, most companies could deliver products in a fairly timely fashion. And then with a lot of the supply chain issues we've seen the last couple of years, um, it's really forcing customers to be a little bit more um, attentive to the, the way in which those items are procured and the amount of time that it takes to get things now. So instead of being able to order things just in time, it's switching back more to a, hey, I better order this stuff now because I don't know what's going to happen in the next six months. So that's really what's going on is that customers are, are rapidly changing to a lot of external factors. And these vendors are an integral part of that where they were 10 years ago. Interested in all things oil and gas? We've got a podcast for you, The Energy Pipeline. Join us each week as we cover the latest trends, transformations, and success stories alongside various key figures from the world's leading energy companies and beyond. Listen to The Energy Pipeline wherever you stream your podcasts or visit cat.com slash energy pipeline. Excellent. So I really want to dive now into fugitive emissions. And just to kind of start off with this term, that maybe some people that are listening don't know what they are. So could you provide what fugitive emissions are? Yeah, sure. I mean, at a very high level, fugitive emissions are nothing more than just an uncontrolled release of something to the atmosphere that does not belong there. You know, you think about your home, right? You have probably a water heater. It's probably, you know, for the most part, they're natural gas driven. There are emissions that come off of that when you burn natural gas to heat up your water tank. And those emissions go to atmosphere through a series of fans or whether it's just a, you know, a passive uh, type uh, emission. And that's an uncontrolled release, right? It's kind of controlled because you know where it's going, 
Uh, but it, but it's a, you know, it, it's something that occurs because of, of the need to have a water heater in your house. You know, facilities are no different, right? They're, you know, I like to think in terms of refineries and chemical facilities and, you know, upstream and midstream oil and gas. And, you know, the, not everything is leaky free. And what I mean by that is, uh, let's say that you have a pipe connection and there's a flange in between and there's a gasket that's holding that flange together. You know, in the perfect world, those mechanical connections would not have any leakage associated with them. But there's an old saying, everything leaks eventually, right? So if something is leaking to atmosphere, that's referred to as a fugitive emission. In other words, it's something you would like to contain, but you're not containing, right? And and these fugitive emissions are, are a major, major topic, not only but in the United States, but worldwide when it comes to you know, what are some of the things that your facility can control? How are you doing it? And what is the rate or what's the amount of emissions that you would expect to see? So companies, you know, we talk about trends, right? We talk about things and how they were 10 years ago compared to now. This is a trend, right? Facilities are now having to look at all of these connections, regardless of whether or not it's a half inch tube fitting or a, a 24 inch flange. Excellent. Yeah. And that's one area where fusion emissions is something, of course, no facility or asset that a company owns wants any type of emission, you know, coming out or leaking from their facility. So what are some of the best practices then for lowering fugitive emissions? Yeah. I mean, fugitive emissions are not related to a specific type of component, whether it's a vessel or a heat exchanger or a control valve, or if it's a, you know, half inch ball valve that you may get from swage lock, right? Um, some of the best practices you want to put together or you want to at least sign up for a protocol, right? So a protocol would be some way that you're monitoring those components. You know, there are things such as, you know, LDAR, which is, you know, leak detection repair. Hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, there, there's some other ones out there such as, you know, EPA method 21, and there's some ISO testing that are that's out there. Uh, but what I would say is, if you're a facility, you know that you're working with, I'll call them environmentally unfriendly gases and liquids, just have a program. You need to have some way of making sure that you're monitoring your facility. You have a remediation plan um, because, you know, let's be honest, it, it's not just the product you make. There are a lot of outside agencies that are monitoring to make sure that what you're doing is in an efficient manner that's safe for the environment. So, so that's kind of the first step. I would say that um, you have to be fully committed to it, right? So you can't just, you know, have a protocol or have a standard or have a program and then kind of check that box and move on. Um, what I would say is internally facing individuals need to be involved. There, there need to be, you know, a, a, an individual or a team of people that are monitoring these things. Um, not only does it make sense for the environment, but it's also making sense for you know, the, the, the out product that you have on your facility, right? What are you making and are you losing any of that into the environment? So I would say the, the um, you know, operational efficiencies alone should be a driver to reduce emissions at your facility. Kind of segueing off of uh, what you just talked about with protocols, can you talk a little bit about the different low energy protocols that do exist and then how those are impacting customers? Yeah, yeah. There's there's three main ones here that I do want to talk about, and these are the three ones that Swagelock is most 
exposed to. So I can hopefully give a little bit of clarity on this stuff uh, based on the expertise I may have here. So uh, first things first is there's, you know, these low E protocols are, are kind of driven by what's called a consent decree. And I will go into a little bit about what a consent decree is. Uh, but the three protocols you should be paying attention to would first off be EPA method 21. And it's not really a protocol. And so I, I mentioned that with a little bit of an asterisk because an EPA method 21 is not a certification for a product, right? Like a valve or something like that, right? And all of these protocols deal with what we like to call an externally adjusted product or an externally adjusted valve. And what does that mean? So let's say um, you, you have a, a valve on the water coming into your house and there's a handle that allows you to open and close that valve. Well, that handle protrudes through the body of the valve. And at that point, there's what's called a packing. And that packing is going to be live loaded on the stem of that valve product. And over time, that valve will uh, you know, be actuated and the, the valve packing will loosen up and tighten up and you, you name it, right? That's what we're concerned with, is that area in which the stem of that valve goes into, uh, you know, connects to the ball of the valve or the needle of the valve, the seat, and that's preventing those fugitive emissions, right? So when we talk about protocols, we really want to talk about what is the quality of the valve product? You know, are you able to contain those emissions? not only at a, a rate of leakage, but also a, a longevity of the rate. In other words, is that valve going to be leak-free on day one, the same as it is on year 10? All right, so that's what these protocols try to help with. You know, the first one is EPA method 21. I said this is not a protocol, and it really isn't. So EPA method 20 and 21 is simply a method for testing anything within the facility. It's simply a way that facilities can you know, identify what protocol they would be using, in other words. So let's say you're a refinery and you, you have a, you're saying, hey, this is an EPA method 21 protocol. It's simply saying we are going to send someone out into the field to test anything, whether it's a flange or a heat exchanger or whatever. And this is going to be, you know, the way in which we test it. And this is how we report it. So an EPA method 21 is not saying, hey, this is you know, a product that we have that has a low leak rate or a high leak rate, it has nothing to do with leak rate. It has everything to do with the way in which you locate those leaks. The next one is going to be ISO 15848-1. ISO is a little bit different than, uh, well, it's a lot different than EPA method 21. Uh, but really what ISO 15848-1 does is it just specifies the testing procedure for stem seals on externally actuated valves. So this is more or less a manufacturer's test. So now we're starting to get to the quality argument. So this has been a test that's been around forever, a long time at least. I would say, you know, pre-2000, you know, manufacturers were testing externally actuated valves with ISO 15848. And what they do is they basically you know, uh, hook up a valve to a, a helium or methane source. They pressurize it. They have a way of, of monitoring the packing on that valve. They send it to an analyzer and that analyzer tells them what the leak rates are. And the way that they monitor that is they say, okay, uh, the valve is leaking at, you know, 
160 parts per million or you know 40 parts per million or whatever it is and they're measuring the average of those parts per million leak rates so uh, if something is is leaking uh, 100 parts per million they say hey this thing you know passed ISO 15848-1 ISO is I, I like ISO testing uh, it's been around for a while um, some of the things to consider is this is more of an upstream and midstream test. And the reason I say that is you can get customized testing with 15848, right? So the ISO testing allows you to, you know, as a facility, you could say, I want all of my control valves to achieve a parts per million of 200 PPM or less under this temperature, under this many cycles. And voila, you have a a protocol that you're happy with for your facility that essentially checks that EPA method 21 box and your consent degree. So I'm kind of going in terms of, of kind of acceptable with EPA through ISO and now to kind of the big one, right? So let's talk about the tests that I'm seeing more and more often. So we talk about what are the market trends that we're seeing. ISO is a manufacturer's test or as a facility, you can test your own products uh, that you're using in your facility, right? The last test I wanna talk about for a second is going to be the API testing. So we all know API stands for uh, American Petroleum Institute and API testing has, or API has a test for determining whether or not something is referred to as a low leaking valve. So within consent decrees, there is language in there saying all valves have to be low leaking. And uh, it sounds like a very subjective term, but one of the low leaking qualifications would be API. So there's two ones to look out for. There is an API 624 test and there's an API 641 test. So API 624, that is to think of a needle valve. So a needle valve would be I always like to think in uh, terms of houses. So you go out to the hose bib where you're hooking up a hose to wash your car. That is a needle valve. That is a globe pattern needle valve. And as you know, you, you loosen up the handle um, on that valve. And what's going on is not only are you rotating that stem in the valve body, but it's also coming in and out of that valve, right? So that, that's, that's referred to as a rising stem valve. The other one is going to be API 641. That is going to be mostly for quarter turn ball valves. So why do I mention API as being a market trend? Uh, the reason is, is that API holds a lot more weight than ISO. You know, customers that are producing gasoline or, or working with hydrocarbons, they tend to gravitate towards API instead of ISO, right? Because it just holds, you know, in the eyes of, of them, this is a, a petroleum um, type of product. The testing is, you know, going to be under methane as opposed to helium or methane, right? So now that now you're starting to replicate more real world conditions at your facility, uh, the testing is a little bit more stringent. What I mean by that is you can cycle the valve or you have to cycle the valve hundreds of times during the test. So we talked about that rising stem valve coming in and out of the valve body and rotating. You have to cycle these valves throughout the test whereas ISO doesn't require that. ISO also allows you to adjust the packing. So if you're working in a facility where you have uh, you know, thousands and thousands of valve products out there, 
how many times are you, your crew going out there and really adjusting those valves, right? How often are they going out there and turning the nut down on that handle to readjust that packing? It doesn't happen very often, right? Because there's just so many out there. So ISO allows you to do that. API does not, right? API says that when we're testing these valves for fugitive emissions, they cannot go above 100 parts per million methane, right? So, you know, ISO would say, hey, we, you know, you can do basically whatever you want as long as that's an acceptable means of leak rate for your facility. API is more standardized, right? And so you think about the large companies that are global, uh, they're going to want to implement kind of the same practices from facility to facility. And API offers uh, that type of, of consistency. No, excellent. And and so I, I do want to stick with the with the ISO and the API testing here for a sec. Are there valves that do not pass ISO or API low emissions testing that the audience should be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, um, well, the, the, let me put it this way: the industry is getting better and better at finding those gaps and coming up with engineering changes that are acceptable. So I'll give you an example of a type of valve that has trouble. Rule of thumb is as you get bigger and bigger in the valve body, let's say you go from a half inch valve up to a, you know, a 12 inch valve, the larger the stem is going to get, right? So the larger the stem gets, the more difficult it is to contain that leak. And that makes sense, right? Because, you know, you have a, you have a large valve stem, uh, you have a, a large piece of packing, you have to apply more torque on it to get that packing to seal better. Um, there's more surface area for those leaks to find ways through the cracks. So, um, you know, just rule of thumb, smaller valve, small leak, large valve, larger leak. And it depends on what's acceptable for your facility. There are other valve packing materials that have trouble containing the leaks over time. Uh, one of which is to address higher temperatures. So most valve products these days have a, have a PTFE or a PFA or a PEAK. And these are all uh, types of plastics, essentially, that are used as a valve packing material. And one of the trade-offs that you'll have with those packing materials is that when you get above, you know, 350 or 400 or 600 degrees Fahrenheit, um, you really can't use them anymore because they start to degrade and, you know, um, lose their springiness that allows that stem seal to be properly contained. So... A lot of times manufacturers will go to a material called graphoil and think of graphoil similar to um, the pliability of aluminum foil, but more or less in a paste format. And that material is kind of like a putty, right? So, um, you know, you ever push down putty or silly putty and it kind of retains that shape when you press your thumb into it. It's the same way with graphoil if you want to think about it that way. So as you tighten that valve down, that graphoil packing, because it doesn't have any spring back associated with it, um, over time, those tend to be valves that have problems when it comes to the API testing. That's not to say you cannot get those valve products ISO tested. It's just they're much harder to get that API certification. So yes, Lee, unfortunately, um, as you get into those larger products, as you get into graphoil packing, those stem materials... Um, our packing materials become a little bit more difficult to contain. However, there is a way to do it. We talk about market trends. Uh, we're starting to see more what we call bellows sealed valves out there, right? So these are valves that have kind of an accordion. That's the bellows. 
that actually contains the stem packing from even being contacted by the process fluid. So uh, you can get these bellows welded. Uh, you can get them down to, I think, eighth inch or quarter inch valves. Uh, so these bellows valves allow for the internal process fluid or whatever you're trying to contain from, it, it makes it impossible for that to come out. So one of the things we're seeing right now is um, analyzers using hydrogen as carrier gas instead of helium because of the scarcity of helium going on. So you can actually use bellows valves in that application uh, because bellows valves can be welded to the body and really have a you know 10 to the minus seven or 10 to the minus nine leak rate, which is basically nothing. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and so now I kind of want to shift a little bit now to detection and repair. So for those that might not be, uh, that might not be up to speed, uh, on these type of programs, can you talk a little bit about what a leak detection repair program is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, I talked to someone years ago who was in Eldar, um, and, and they said it's the best job at a refinery and, I, I, I've, you know, you can always tell who they are. So LDAR stands for leak detection and repair. And, you know, earlier we talked about EPA method 21 and how, you know, that's just a method for testing, right? It's just a method for testing. So let, let's kind of go back for a second and talk about uh, what a consent decree is, right? Because I really want to talk about this. I kind of left out going into details about it, but a consent decree is, is a legally binding uh, let's call it a contract or an agreement between a facility and their state or federal government, right? So if you're a refinery and you say, hey, I want to make sure that our facility isn't emitting products and we're being environmentally conscious, or let's say that there were some things that happened that kind of forced the consent decree to be implemented. Um, a consent decree, it, this document is is continuous, right? It calls out things like, like I said, you have to have low leaking valves. You have to have a program. Um, there, there is a, a time at which you can repair products in the field or fix the issue. Unfortunately, there are fines associated with certain things based on the consent decree. And, you know, within the consent decree, you're going to have um, something called an LDAR program. Or within there, they're at least going to mention EPA Method 21. And LDAR, Leak Detection and Repair, is going to be an obligation for that facility to address leaks that are discovered. And there's a couple ways that they do it. So you may walk around a, a refinery and see um, a, a, an employee of that facility walking around, they have a backpack and they, have, you, they might have a headset on or they might have a wand in their hand and you may see them going up to a flange or, or a valve product or a piece of tubing or whatever you wanna call it. And they're, they're looking for leaks, right? And so this device that they have will either pick up a hissing sound through like what's called an ultrasonic leak detector, or it just may be measuring hydrocarbons. And so this Eldar individual will be, uh, let's say they find a leak, whether it could be on a, um, a, uh, a pump seal. That's one of the number one areas where leaks are noted. So you go to a pump seal and they say, hey, I'm picking up a rate of, of 400 parts per million. Um, they will document that in their system. That system will uh, uh, tip off 
either someone in operations or will tip off a planner or an engineer or whoever, and they have a certain amount of time to go out there and address that leak. So they'll, you know, now they'll set up a work order. That work order will repair that product if they can. If they can't, they have a certain amount of time to address it. And then the fines start kicking in, unfortunately. So an Eldar program, I, I would say you'd be hard pressed to find a refinery in the Americas that does not have an Eldar program. Uh, I, I hope I'm wrong, but um, I think you'd be hard pressed to find out uh, which ones that do not have that. So, um, and they're a team of people too. So it's not just one individual going from unit to unit. Uh, you may have a team of 10 or more that their job is solely to go out there and find leaks, document them, and make sure that they're buttoned up operationally. Yeah, I bet, especially how big those facilities can be. So, <laughs> uh, so I want to shift gears a little bit here, and I want to talk about IOGP, JIP33, and S716. So can you explain to the audience what those standards are and how they impact customers? Yeah, yeah. This is one that's really popped up on our radar over the last two years, uh, two or three years, actually. And it's something that Swagelock SSCs, we call our sales and service centers, have picked up on. Um, and this is one of those gaps I talk about when it comes to vendors, uh, you know, plugging holes in, in training programs and things like that. So if you go back to 2009, this is a great segue. Um, some refineries started approaching me and saying, hey, we're starting to look into, uh, do you have any low emissions testing on your products? And I, I said, uh, I think so. I'll check into it for you. And I you know, went back and found out ISO and then the API thing started showing up. Uh, that was mostly prior to 2009, a larger bore issue. So larger bore would be you know, piping systems and vessels and, and control valves and all the stuff that you would not typically see tubing attached to. And then in 2012 or 2013, um, th that Eldar program that was being implemented started getting into the tubing world, right? You started seeing things like Eldar tags on valves and things like that. Um, you know, not to say that they're leaking, but just a way of documenting that those valves are part of that LDAR program. So we started seeing a lot of these tags and identifiers on smaller and smaller tubing sizes. And now most facilities are pretty much doing it on all tubing sizes, regardless um, of service, right? So, uh, so some facilities may say, you know, all valve products in your facility have to be low emission rated, right? That's you think about it, it's kind of crazy uh, to say that, you know, a valve that's carrying cooling water through it needs to have an Eldar tag on it. Uh, but it makes sense if you think about it a little bit deeper is that they don't want those products going into process applications due to inventory control. So you have a valve sitting in a late on yard somewhere. Uh, it's two o'clock in the morning. You have to solve a problem. You see, you just pick up any random valve you want. Um, that valve might be a valve for uh that might be a one-piece valve that you, someone bought at Home Depot for propane service, right? So, so think about it in, in those terms, and that's why what we're seeing is going on. Uh, so getting to your question about IOGP and JIP33, um, that, that stands for the International Oil and Gas Producers, and they're a, a group that helps out with standards, right? So standards could be a training standard. It could be an installation standard. 
It could be a way in which something is produced standard. And underneath that, you have all of these different um, standards that you can download for free. And that's what's so cool about this GIP 33 stuff is you can go on their website and say, hey, I'm interested in I'm, I'm interested in a operational efficiency regarding this. And in many cases, you would find an IOGP standard that can help you out. And so that's pretty cool. So contained within that is a series of standards. I think the last time I looked, I counted about 100 or so standards that you can download. And one of them that we're following very closely right now is this IOGP, GIP 33, and S716 standards. And this is really related to uh, tube fittings, tube fitting installation um, from kind of a procurement standpoint. Let's just get into it for a second. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what these standards are. So S716 is mostly for tubing and tubing systems. And IOGP isn't going to come out and say, hey, we want everyone to use this manufacturer tube fitting or this, you know, metallurgy. It's not going to get that deep, but they do make some recommendations, which we're seeing. So S716, it's the industry standardized specification for small bore tubing and fittings up to two inch, right? And what they do is they, they build on existing industry standards and they provide a complete set of requirements to purchase equipment and packages. Really, so this is, IOGP is a standard to prevent some of the issues that are known out there in the field. So a couple of them that you might wanna think about um, is that you know just like API, these 716 standards are created by people in your industry, right? So these are oil and gas operators. They're committed to supporting it. There's a number of huge names that have already signed on to implementing uh, S716, right? You think about the, the, the BPs, the Chevrons, the Conecos, the Petrobras, the Petronas, you know, Saudi Aramco, Shell, uh, Woodside. These are all companies that have all signed on to this. There's a couple things that are in here which, which facilities should be looking into. Um, the first is that you know compression fittings shall be from a single manufacturer. Um, for those of you that have been involved with Swedgelock over the years, we always talk about the problems with interchanging and intermixing. Right? It's always been kind of like, hey, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. It's not a good idea. It exposes you to certain things. And IOGP has picked up on that. They have you know, validated that that's a good practice. And so single manufacturer, um, you know, because of that, they want to reduce the amount of intermixing of tube fittings from different manufacturers. So that means, you know, connecting up a, a compression fitting XYZ with another um, manufacturer, right? The other thing is that compression fittings shall be flareless and double ferrule type. So when we talk about installation of fittings, there are single ferrule manufacturers, there are there are dual ferrule manufacturers. It's saying that you should only use dual ferrule, and there are reasons for that as well. And you can contact your local Swagelock Sales and Service Center if you want information on that. The final thing, this is really where the reduction in issues are going to be seen, and that is with training. So prior to 2013, it was rare for you know refineries or chemical facilities to reach out saying, hey, we want all of our people certified on how to install tube fitting. And now we're seeing it from pretty much everybody. Everybody's doing it. 
you know, the first thing I said to you, Lee, was that, you know, uh, facilities are starting to outsource a lot more of their labor. With that comes issues with standardization and quality of installation. You know, most contractors are pretty good. Um, I would say that it's the focus is not on saying, hey, contractors are bad because they're not. They're great. Uh, what they're saying is facilities are saying, hey, we want there to be a standard that all of them have to have. And so this IOGP says, and this is verbatim, the tubing system shall be installed by personnel who have been certified by the fittings manufacturers approved product training program or equivalent industry training program, including hands-on assembly. So the S716 is going to say, you need to have your people trained. They need to be trained by the manufacturer that you utilize in your facility. And there has to be a, a program that is, that is approved for your facility, right? So you have to have people that are certified to install those fittings to do it. And so when you're talking about a facility, I mean, who at that facility would be responsible for implementing an IOGP training uh, requirement? Yeah, um, a lot of, you go back to, well, I always like to use 10 years compared to now, right? So if you go back to 2013, you may have a health and safety coordinator that was basically running all of the training programs for the entire facility. You know, those training programs are way more now than they used to be 10 years ago. So for those of you that work at a facility, you may have, you know, forklift training, you may have site-specific training, uh, you, you may even have uh, some additional external training that meets that requirement. Um, now, because the training programs are, are, are bigger, they're more frequent, they're tied into your badge, uh, you may have you know, at, at smaller facilities, you may have a, a instrumentation lead or a rotating equipment lead or an operations lead that is actually signing up their people for this training class. But I would say if you're interested in knowing who is responsible for tube fitting training or tubing training, uh, you know, start with your hs &E representative. That would be your health and safety and environmental. Uh, they may direct you to a, a subgroup. Um, they, they may send you to a turnarounds group manager that is adhering to their site practices. Um, I, I would say, though, that the instrumentation and electrical is probably still going to be the number one group because they interact with tube fittings the most, right? So they're going to have an inventory of these products that they want to make sure their people are properly trained. Uh, they're going to maintain records of who has gone to them. Uh, they may even send their supervisors to it multiple times to make sure that there's a, um, you know, post-installation checklist that has been documented for for you know outside contractors and their internal people as well. Uh, there are other groups though. Um, the the lead operator. There should be a lead operator at your facility, um, or someone in charge of operations that would also like the you know the the shift people, you know, could be interacting with these fittings from time to time, to not only be able to diagnose issues that they see in the field, but also have that certification ready for when something happens at three in the morning and the instrumentation group has gone home for the night. Excellent. Well, listen, Mike, really enjoy the conversation. Really can't thank you enough for providing us some time to chat, especially about these really, really important issues that are facing our industry. So again, really want to thank you for your time today. 
And of course, as always, we want to thank all of you for listening to this latest podcast episode. Lee, I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to our show. Please check out the show notes for the links we discussed in the podcast. We value your opinions. So if you have any questions or comments, kindly email them to us at deepdive at worldoil.com. Additionally, we'd appreciate it if you could rate us on your preferred podcast listening app. Lastly, don't forget to visit worldoil.com for the latest technical articles and news about the oil and gas industry.